Good to have you here today. If you're a, if you're a visitor with us, we are in, we're going into week three now of our series on David. We're going to spend the summer uh, studying David. Mind you, I was just backstage uh, now, just taking a little break. I got to sit down finally this morning, and, and I, was, I was paging through, uh, where am I going to go next in the next messages? And the David story is long. Um, so we're not going to get through it now in summer, so I don't know what I'm going to do. Uh, we're either going to keep going, or I'm going to stop, and we'll do David again a hundred times yet in my life. But, but uh, we're in week three, and, and, and we're just working our way through it systematically so far. So the, the story of David starts. First chapter about David in the entire Bible is 1 Samuel 16. We spent the first two weeks in 1 Samuel 16. Week one, we looked at him getting anointed as king. Last week, we looked at the whole story of where he goes to play uh, music for Saul, who's being uh, oppressed by, a, by an evil spirit. And today, we're going to do chapter 17. We're just going to pick up. Next verse, uh, right after chapter 16, we're going to go 17, verse 1. And we're going to look at the, the, one of the most famous stories in the Bible, which is the story of David and Goliath. That's our story today, all right? So I want you to bow your heads with me and close your eyes. And then we'll get into this famous story, and we'll ask the Lord to speak to us again. Lord Jesus, we want to start with Thanksgiving this morning. You are the head of this church. And I want to thank you. as your idea. The whole camp, Jesus, you, you gave it to us. It's unbelievable. What a story. And it's all for your glory. And the kids that are being ministered to, it's amazing. I thank you for that camp. I thank you for the hundreds of people, parents and young adults, who are sacrificing, volunteering, holidays and vacation time, and they're, they're spending it at camp in the kitchen and counseling and all kinds of things, maintenance and properties. Jesus, I pray a blessing on every person, young adult, parent, young, old, Jesus, who is volunteering time and, and giving time this year at camp. I pray that you would bless them spiritually and physically and in their homes and financially in every which way, Lord, that you would bless them and that you would bless those children. Lord, my prayer request continues to be that every child that goes to that camp this year is going to be in heaven someday and that camp will have played a part, Lord. That's what we want more than anything else, and that'll make it all worth it. And then, Lord, we get, to, we get to talk about David again today from your word. Thank you for your word. Oh, we're blessed to have your word. Would you speak to us through this old, famous story? Would you speak to us afresh? Would you encourage us? In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. All right. Chapter 17, verse 1, story of David and Goliath, picking up exactly where we left off uh, last week. And often in, in, in these messages when I'm doing a, a character study or story, I like to start the message off by reading the story and then we'll go back and work our way through. But chapter 17 is just far too long and, uh, for me to go through the whole thing and then to go back through it. So we're just going to inch our way through the story, okay? And so chapter 17, verse 1 starts this way. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle and they were gathered at Sokah, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Sokah and Azekah in Ephes uh, Demim. I, I really wish they had some more Mennonite names in there, but, but they don't. So, um, <laughs> verse 4, And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. Now, we're going to stop here. This is not the main point of my message, but it is an important point point of the message. I want to mess with your minds just a little bit at the beginning, and then we're, we're going to move on to the rest of the story. But I there's two reasons why, and I'm just warning you all this in advance, because for a little while you're here, you're going to question my sanity and maybe even my Christianity, all right? So I just, I have to mess with your minds for just a little bit, and I'm, I'm, I'm not doing this just to be a jerk, okay? I, I really am. I got two reasons for this, I'll tell you what. But this six cubits in a span, okay? A cubit is about a foot and a half, all right? And so this is where we get the whole thing that Goliath was nine or nine and a half feet tall. Now, how many of you in Sunday school grew up and you were taught that Goliath was nine feet or more tall, okay? Only a few of you, or many of you obviously didn't go to Sunday school because 
That's what you get taught in Sunday school, all right? That's what, I was taught. That's what we, we've taught here. And, and you have not, that, that's, that's okay, that's fine. That's not, it's certainly not heresy, all right? I just, and I've got two reasons for this, which I will get to in just a moment. I just want to drop a bomb for you. The oldest manuscripts, all of the oldest manuscripts of the Bible, all the oldest Greek and Hebrew manuscripts of the Old Testament, all of them uh, do not have six cubits in a span. They all have four cubits in a span, okay? Now, I know some of you just, it's over. Uh, it, you know, Chris has lost his mind, right? Uh, how can this be, right? Are you saying that Goliath wasn't a giant after all? He was a hamster. He was a little shrimp. No, okay? Four cubits in a span. You don't even know if you can giggle. Like, it's amazing how some of these little things get so ingrained in our minds. It's like, I can't let go. Okay, four cubits in a span. He's still a giant, okay? He still would have been, even at that, uh, that, you know, that number, he would have been around seven feet tall. Okay, now I know some of you, want, uh, first, first of all, you're thinking, I've never heard this before, Chris is making this up, he is just, he's, he's, this is some kind of eccentric thing he found on one website on the internet or something. Okay, first, first of all, I just want to show you something, again, I have two reasons, I'm going to get to two reasons why I'm taking my time to do this. First of all, if you have any kind of reputable Bible, like any reputable translation, uh, NIV, ESV, NASB, uh, any of the big ones, and it has footnotes at the bottom. You just go to the bottom of the footnotes. So if you have your Bibles here, whatever, you go to the bottom, and right there, so right by the six cubits, it's got a footnote. In my Bible, it's footnote two, and it says right there at the bottom, in the Hebrew, the Septuagint, the Dead Sea Scroll, and Josephus, four cubits, not six. All the oldest manuscripts of the Bible have four cubits, not six. You look up any reputable commentary, and I looked up a bunch this week. I'm not making this up. This is not just me. You look up any reputable commentary, Okay, on this passage, and they'll all tell you the oldest manuscripts all say four cubits in a span, not six cubits in a span. Now, some of you are freaking out and you're thinking, uh, you just don't have faith enough in the Bible to believe that he was a giant. This has nothing to do with faith in the Bible. I, if the Bible, I have absolute confidence in this word, and I've preached messages that we can be confident in this thing. If, it, if this word says that he's 15 feet tall, I'll go to my death saying he, and I'll fight for 15 feet tall. If it says he was 128 feet tall, I'll go to my desk saying he was 128 feet tall, if, it, if this is what it says. But if it doesn't say that, I'm not going to say something it doesn't say. So the oldest manuscripts uh, say four cubits in a span, and it's only in the, somewhere in the first century AD that we see the first uh, manuscripts coming in that say six cubits in a span. So obviously in there somewhere a copyist made, made an error from chain to four uh, to a six. You say, yes, but then Goliath wasn't a giant. It changes the whole story. Um, have you ever stood next to a seven-foot man? <laughs> I, I remember one time, well, first, uh, well, I'll just tell, when, when we were in Korea, I remember being in a mall once, and it must have been the American basketball team, that's all I can imagine, but um, we were walking in the, in, in the store, and these, these two black ladies, uh, they must have been about 6'10", I don't know, they were, they were, I was like a grasshopper in my own eyes. They walked past us <laughs> in, in a mall, and I just went, oh, my goodness. And I remember being in, in, when we were in Vancouver, when Vancouver had an NBA team, the Vancouver Grizzlies, and uh, something that everybody wants to forget. But anyway, they, uh, the LA Lakers came to, uh, to town, and I watched, I saw Shaquille O'Neal uh, play in person. I didn't meet him, but I just saw him, and just sitting there, and seeing this guy, he was, I mean, he was, you know, seven foot one, you know, 350 pounds or something. I mean, he was, he was huge, okay? So first of all, this does not change the story. Uh, seven feet tall, you know, 300 pounds, whatever. It, it, the guy was absolutely massive, okay? It doesn't, change, it doesn't change the story. You say, well, why are you taking the time to tell us this? And there's, there's two reasons. Again, I'm not doing this just to mess around with you. Um, I wouldn't waste time on that. There's two reasons why I want to take time to do this. And the second one is far and away the most important. That's the reason I wanted to have it here. But the first one, I'll do the first one first. 
Uh, the first one is that many well-meaning Christians, and some of you are here today, and that's totally fine. This is not me passively, aggressively, uh, you know, preaching at people, but I, I'll often get articles and stuff, and there's this theory out there, a lot of Christians trying to explain medically how, how Goliath got to nine feet tall, or nine and a half feet tall, whatever six cubits in a span would have been. It would have been over nine feet. And, uh, and first of all, we don't need to explain it medically. I mean, again, if the Bible says he was nine and a half feet tall, it's some kind of supernatural thing, it's, it's fine. But a lot of Christians feel a need to come up with an explanation. And so there's one popular theory. I've seen documentaries done on this, whole documentaries, videos. You can find them on YouTube. I've seen, uh, you know, magazine articles. I've seen books. I mean, Malcolm Gladwell wrote a whole book that popularized this theory a few years ago in a book called David and Goliath. But uh, one of the big theories that's out there, a lot of people trying to explain how Goliath could be over nine feet tall, is that Goliath had a med medical condition known as acromegaly, okay? Now, you don't need to write that down, and, and you don't need to remember it, because you will lose valuable brain space for something else that you needed, as I did this week, by learning that. But anyway, uh, so a lot of people explain that he had this condition called acromegaly. What is acromegaly? Acromegaly is a condition where you have a tumor on your pituitary gland, and what it does is, it, it, and, it, and it's, it's, a, it's like a disease. It's a sad thing, actually. But people who have this, their bodies won't stop growing. They get extra large hands and feet, and they grow taller and taller and taller. So if you look in the Guinness Book of World Records at all the tallest people in the world over the last number of decades, all of them, anybody, any human being who gets close to eight feet or eight feet or over, all of them, without exception, once you get up to eight feet, around eight feet and over, all of them, without exception, have acromegaly, which is a tumor on the pituitary gland, which causes them to grow very, very tall. Okay, and so lots of people have surmised, and again, documentaries have been made, books have been written, magazine articles have been written. This is how Goliath got so tall. Okay, now the only thing you have to understand is, and because I'll just say it right off the beginning, right here, and this is no offense to anybody. If you believe this, it's totally fine. You haven't lost your Christianity, and I'm not mad at you at all, okay? But I'll just tell you right now, Goliath did not have acromegaly, okay? He did not have acromegaly. And the reason I say that is acromegaly makes people tall. It does not make them vigorous or healthy or strong. All of the people who have this condition, it's a sad thing. I feel for them. Uh, you know, right now, the tallest man in the world is this Sultan uh, Kozmet. I'm, I'm not saying his name right, but he's from Turkey. He's about eight foot two or eight foot three. He has it. I've seen interviews with him. It seems like a really nice guy. He has to walk around with a cane. He's super, super tall, but he's not vigorous. He has to walk around with a cane. They, these people who have this, they get really, really bad arthritis because of the size of their hands and feet. They have difficulty moving. Many of them have vision problems, which some Christians have taken to, and have tried to put that into the Goliath story, and they'll say things like, well, this is why Goliath didn't duck when the stone hit him in the head. It's because he had vision problems because he had acromegaly. And I'm going, huh? <laughs> the reason he didn't duck when the stone hit him in the head is because the stone was coming very fast. Okay, you can have good eyesight and whoosh. Down you go, okay? So Goliath didn't have acromegaly because the men of Israel would not be, have been terrified of a man with acromegaly, okay? I'm not making fun of those people. They have a rare condition, and that's sad, but they, wouldn't have been, they would not have been terrified of a guy who came out with a cane and couldn't see properly, okay? They wouldn't have. What they were terrified of was a very, very large, powerful man, vigorous, strong, healthy, okay? He did not have acromegaly. So we can put that one down, and you will see that. A lot of Christians spend a lot of time coming up with theories like this, and that's not what Goliath had. Again, if he's seven feet, 350 pounds, and he's strong and he's fast, that is terrifying, and he was huge, okay? Um, but the second thing I want to talk about, and this is the more important one, because this is something I, I want to just have sink into your subconscious, and it's not the main application of the message where we're going to go, but it's something I want to continually affirm, and, and that is we need to talk about 
errors in the Bible, because some of you might be freaking out just a little bit right now. Wait, whoa, wait, wait a minute. There's mistakes in the Bible, right? Because we've always been taught, and it's true, we've been taught the Bible is inerrant and infallible. We can absolutely trust it. So some of you are going, wait a minute, wait a, wait a minute. I open up my Bible and it says six cubits in a span, but actually there's discrepancies in the manuscripts and the older ones say four cubits in a span. How can that be true? I thought the Bible had no mistakes. You're right, the Bible is inerrant and it is infallible. But let me explain to you now what that means. And the reason I think this is important is because it's exactly little things like this that you go to, you know, some of you young people are going to go to university, and there's other ones like this throughout the Bible. And you'll go to university, and some atheist will throw this in your face. See, the Bible is not God's word. It's got mistakes in it. And you'll go, because oh, you were taller in your life. The Bible is inerrant. And you'll go, you're right. And your, and your faith will be, will be shaken. And they'll show you other ones. They'll say, look at mistakes in the Bible. It's not from God. There is no God. Well, let me first of all tell you, first, right off the bat, before I even explain what inerrancy actually means, the idea that you can look at a, at, at a little tiny mistake like this where a copyist changed a four to a six and say, see, based on that, I throw out the whole Bible and there, there is no God. That would be like going to a, a large maple tree, finding a twig. Remember I talked about a month or two ago about twig, and tr- twig issues and trunk issues? That'd be like going to a big maple tree, finding one little rotten branch or twig, pulling it off and saying, see, there is no maple tree. Does that make any sense? To take one tiny little issue like that and throw it, there is no God because someone changed a four to a six. It doesn't change the story. It doesn't change the fact that how do we get here? It changes none of that, all right? But let me explain to you what inerrancy means, okay? When we say that the Bible is inerrant and infallible, this is what we mean. Number one, it means the Bible is absolutely true 100% in everything it teaches first. Number two, it means the Bible is absolutely true in, if it, in everything it says happens. So if it tells us, you know, there was a man named Moses and he led the Israelites out of Egypt, it's true. And eventually, now archaeology, sometimes you don't find stuff in archaeology, so you, you can't confirm everything with archaeology because some stuff is just buried. But whenever there is archaeology, all the archaeology that is found always ends up supporting what's in the Bible. It's amazing how that works, okay? But if the Bible says something happened, it, it did happen. The Bible says there was a Jonah, there was a Jonah, okay? It's true. And, and many of these things get confirmed over and over and over again throughout the Bible. It's awesome, okay? So whatever the Bible teaches is true, and whatever the Bible says happened is true, and the Bible has never been proven wrong in anything it says happened. But what this does not mean, this is not affected. The fact that the Bible, because the Bible is from God, of course. Of course it's true when it teaches. Of course it's true when it says happened. It's true. Okay? But have you ever thought about this? There's something really interesting about God and how he loves us humans. God wants to give us his word. I mean, that's amazing. What a gift the word of God is. But have you ever thought about this? What an important thing for God to give us. But when God wanted to give us his word, he didn't go off in an office by himself and write it out by himself and then give it to us. You ever think about that? I mean, the Bible, God's word, he didn't go out, write it all by himself and then give it to us. What did he do? He worked through human beings. He worked through human beings, okay? And so he talked to human beings, and in those originals, he inspired those originals. But then, over time, he allowed humans, because he likes using humans. Instead of just doing it all on his own, he said, I want to use humans. And so humans copied it and translated it. And as much as we can, with scholarship, we always go back to the originals. The closer we are to the originals, the more accurate we are, because it was the originals that were inspired. But in this whole process, um, and it's not tons and tons of mistakes, but in the process of translating and copying, certainly God using humans... Humans will make errors, and there are little spelling errors and grammatical errors, and there's, there's, there's you know, the odd copyist error like this, and none of this affects the fact that God inspired it. 
And you'll also find little variations in numbers from story to story. For example, you know, First Samuel, uh, it might say, talk about a particular battle and say there was 832 soldiers. And then in Chronicles, it might talk about the same battle. And it might say there was 1,000 soldiers. And people go, see, there is no God. That makes no sense. One writer rounded up, one, one writer didn't. That does not mean God wasn't inspiring these people or that what they're saying truth. That isn't true. In fact, J. Warner Wallace, who is now a famous a Christian apologist and author. He recently wrote a book called Cold Case Christianity, which is an excellent book. But anyway, uh, much of his life he was an atheist. He was an expert in witness testimony. I think he worked for the FBI or something like that. Uh, but, he's, but he's in the States, and he, uh, he, he uh, studied witness testimony in criminal court cases. And what he says is, he said, um, whenever you would find two witnesses where they give uh, the exact same story, detail for detail to the nth degree. He said, we always knew they were lying. It meant that they had planned their story out beforehand and then, and then gave this, the exact same story. He said, whenever you have true truth tellers and you get a few people together who have all seen the same thing, he said, you're gonna get all the main stuff of the story the same and then you'll have a minor variation here, minor variation here because they're looking at it from different angles, different perspectives, all sort of stuff. You get these minor detail variations and all sort of stuff. And it was based on that. He was an atheist. He used his expertise as, uh, in studying witness testimony, and he used those same principles to study the Gospels. He was actually going to refute them, to study the Gospels and some of the stories in the Old Testament. And instead of refuting them, at the end of it, he said, actually, these guys were telling the truth, and he got saved, and now he's a Christian apologist, okay? So actually, some of these minor variations and some of the things that happen uh, in the Bible that we see actually don't take away from the truthfulness of the Bible. They actually show us that God was using human beings who were actually telling the truth, okay? So that's inerrancy. Inerrancy is the Bible is true in everything it teaches. The Bible is true in everything it says happened, and this is not affected. When people throw, you know, look at this little mistake or look at this little mistake, it does not affect the overall truthfulness of the Bible. Does that make sense? Okay, so, you know, whether the Goliath was seven feet tall or nine feet tall, in the end, it doesn't matter a whole huge amount. I only bring it up to just bring up that issue, but he was still a giant, and... And we see that if we keep moving here now, verse 5. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. So that's about 125 pounds. Now, uh, so that's, that was, they would wear this coat of mail over their chest. It was made out of bronze rings, and uh, it was meant to be a protective for the warrior. It was also supposed to be light, because you wouldn't want to be weighed down. You wouldn't want to be exhausted or slow in battle which just again shows us what a, what a beast Goliath was, almost superhuman strength, that for him a light coat of mail was 125 pounds, all right? Um, and he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, so that's about uh, 20 pounds. And again, 20 pounds, if you're going to pick up a rock that's 20 pounds, that's not a big deal, it's not very heavy. Uh, but 20 pounds of iron on the end of a spear is, it takes a massive amount of strength. I mean, just imagine a 20-pound sledgehammer. Any of you who's ever swung a 20-pound sledgehammer, that is, that's a beast to wield. That'll tire you out to swing that for very long. Now imagine wielding that with one hand and thrusting and parrying and doing those sorts of things. Goliath, again, almost superhuman strength. Very, very powerful, uh, gigantic man, all right? And he stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why have you come out to drop for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down for me, to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. 
And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. Now, I want to just begin to a little bit apply this. Um, but have you ever, have you ever thought, um, I mean, again, we read these stories so fast, and I say that all the time. We read these stories so fast that we glaze over a lot of the details. Have you ever stopped to wonder why he didn't, I mean, he can't, comes out 40 days, day after day, he says the same thing. I defy, I defy, I defy. And he's talking, talking, talking. Have you ever wondered, like, why didn't he just come out and start smashing some heads together? Like, I mean, he just, we just come out and every day we just yell at the Israelites and we, we, and we just talk and I defy you and come out and fight me. But he doesn't actually do anything to anyone. And of course, no doubt, there's many reasons for this. And part of it will be the sovereignty of God and, and, and working out the timing of various things and all that. Um, but part of this is, this is just part of how the devil works. And one of the devil's big schemes is intimidation, okay? You get the biggest, most, I mean, have you ever, I mean, the contrast before, between God and Satan. Uh, Satan doesn't send out a shepherd boy with a slingshot. You ever think about that? Like, Satan doesn't send out a boy with a slingshot to yell at them, hey, come out and fight me, okay? He sends out the biggest, most powerful, I, I'm imagining one of the most hairy men, it just seems more scary that way, but... Um, <laughs> He was big, he was powerful, maybe he was hairy. And, but he just sends out the biggest, the meanest, the most terrifying, right? And then he gets them yelling and intimidation. Why? This is the way the devil works. He, he works through intimidation, okay? He wants to get Christians, he wants to get churches. We see it in our culture today. This is how he's always worked. This is one of his main weapons. If he can create a culture of fear, if he can create a climate of fear, he knows if there's no fear, Christians will stand. If there's no fear, if there's nothing to be afraid of, Christians will stand on the word of God and they'll say, absolutely, that's what the Bible says and we believe it and we're going to follow it. But you just bring in a little bit of fear and a little bit more fear and suddenly you have Christians going, ah, you know what, I don't think it really means that, and I'm not sure if we need to follow that anymore, because if he creates a climate of fear, if he can intimidate, he knows, first of all, that Christians won't fight him, which he really does not want, and he knows he'll get Christians to compromise and capitulate and give up. So intimidation is one of his big weapons, okay? And we see this also in the New Testament. It talks about this, 1 Peter 5, verse 8. Peter says this, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. A roaring lion. Notice again the difference between the devil and God. The Holy Spirit speaks in a gentle whisper. Jesus went to the cross. He was silent as a lamb, right? That's one of, that's one of the main things Jesus is, is called in the New Testament is the lamb of God. But the devil goes around as a roaring lion. Why? Intimidation. He wants to get Christians afraid. He wants to get churches afraid. And in this story, it's working, right? If we go next verse there in 1 Samuel 17, when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. They were terrified. They were dismayed and greatly afraid. And as soon as Satan's got the people of God dismayed and greatly afraid, they're not going to be on the offensive against him. He's got them cowering. They were, uh, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. And of course, they had good reason to be. If you were watching this, it's not just that Goliath is saying scary words. Goliath is scary. He's huge, okay? He's powerful. He's a terrifying warrior. And again, this is how Satan works, okay? Satan always goes because intimidation is his game, and it's his game in your personal life. It's his game against this church. It's his game against churches across North America and the world. It's intimidation. So it's not just that he's constantly talking fear and threats, fear and threats, fear and threats. It's that he presents with power and size. And this is throughout the Bible. His guy is Goliath, you know, seven feet tall, 350 pounds. God's guy is shepherd boy, right? The, the story of the Exodus 
Satan's guy is Pharaoh, most powerful man in the world. God's guy is, is Moses. Again, shepherd out of the deserts of Midian. Okay? Christmas story. Satan's guy is Herod, powerful king, evil, wicked tyrant. He's got an army. He's got a palace. He's got lots of money and all that sort of stuff. And Jesus comes with what? A baby in a manger to a poor young couple. First century A.D., Satan's team, the mighty Roman Empire, one of the most mighty empires at that point in time. God's team, the early church, a bunch of, a band of misfits and regular people, no weapons, lots of poor people, women, slaves, fishermen, those sorts of people. God's team, Satan's team. Satan always goes for intimidation. It's power, it's size, it's fear, it's threats. But God loves the underdog. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And this should be a blessing to us. I just love our God. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Paul says, God passes over. Those are the ones Satan picks. And again, it's not that God, and I'll get to that caveat in just a moment. It's not that God never uses powerful people or never uses rich people or strong people. He used, he used Samson, and I'll talk about that in a moment. But I want you to notice, as a general rule, Satan goes for power. God passes over. He passes over all that. Verse 27 but God chose what is foolish. He chose. It's not like Satan got to pick first and he picks Goliath and God goes, rats. I wanted the big guy. No. He's sovereign king of the universe. He chooses what is foolish. He says, good, 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 good. You got the big guy? I want the little guy. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Now, I just want to make a quick caveat here, and then we're going to come back to this weakness thing, because this is what the message is about. But it's not that God will never use strong or rich people. That is not what I'm saying here. He'll use anyone. But I want you to, so for example, Samson is an example. God used someone strong. Okay, but I want you to notice even in Samson's life, when did Samson do the most damage against the Philistines? The most of his entire life was the last thing he did in his life after his eyes had been gouged out, after he had been changed and humiliated, after he had fallen, he then killed more Philistines at the end of his life than he had the rest of his life combined. Why? Out of weakness comes strength. Out of weakness, that's when we're strong. Out of weakness comes strength. Now you say, what does this mean? What does this mean for us today? First of all, I think there are a lot of Christians who never get into the game. They, they said, you know, Jesus said, seek first his kingdom. And a lot of Christians never seek Jesus' kingdom. They come to church once a week, they think that's seeking God's kingdom, but they never serve. They never use their talents or abilities or gifts or time for God. They go to church once a week, and then the rest of the time they do whatever. And on judgment day, a lot of these Christians are going to stand before Jesus, and he's going to say, you didn't seek my kingdom, you just, you just sat in church once a week. And they're going to say, yeah, but I couldn't serve you because I wasn't good enough at this. I wasn't trained in the Bible. I wasn't a good enough leader. And they think they're being humble. They think, I just don't serve God because I'm not good enough. I'm not a good enough speaker. I'm not a good enough leader. I'm not a good enough organizer. I don't have enough charisma. I don't have the right talent, ability, personality, whatever. And you think, I just can't serve God. And you want, on judgment day, that is not going to be an excuse. You want to know why? Because God says, and that's exactly why I wanted to use you. That's exactly why I wanted to use you. On judgment day, no one's going to say to Jesus, I didn't serve you because I was too weak. And him go, oh, you're right. It's exactly weakness. He says, that's exactly why I wanted to use you, so that I could look good through you. 
It's exactly the fact that you aren't as good a speaker and you aren't as good a leader and you aren't as good an organizer and you aren't as good at this and good at good at good and personality and all these things. It's exactly because of that that God says, I have chosen you. I chose the foolish. Are you foolish? That's what I want. Now some of you are going, you're flipping sides. No, 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 I'm not foolish. I'm not foolish, right? <laughs> I'm not weak, I'm not weak, right? But that's what God says. He uses the weak. He uses the foolish. He uses the lowly. You say, what am I going to do? I don't know how to do this. Just show up. Well, we're going to get to the David part, what he did. But you just show up and be yourself. Love Jesus and love people as a regular person. Just be vulnerable about who you are, and God will use you mightily. You don't have to put on a show. Secondly, okay, there's a second group of Christians, and they are in the game. They are serving Jesus. They, they do. They're out there, and they're taking risks for the kingdom, and they're trying to push forward God's kingdom, whether it be at work and through the, or through the church or, or whatever, and they're trying to do it, but they constantly feel pressure. They feel anxiety. They feel fear because they just, again, they, they never feel good enough. They feel like they have to be the perfect person, the perfect parent, the perfect leader, the perfect this, the perfect that, and they're always full of anxiety. And I just want to say this to you today. This is what this verse is for you. You don't have to be strong. I mean, some of you might be reading this passage and you say, I don't know, like, what does this passage mean? Does this mean we have to go around and make ourselves weak? Does this mean we have to go around and talk down on ourselves or make ourselves suffer so we can be weak? The point of this isn't that you have to make yourself weak. The point is, if you'll just pay attention, you are weak. You don't have to make yourself weak. Just, you just don't have to make yourself strong. That's for sure. Where we waste a lot of energy and stress is trying to make ourselves strong trying to look good for other people, trying to have it together, trying to be better than we are. And God says, stop trying to be better than you are. Stop trying to be bigger. Stop trying to be stronger. Stop trying to be more perfect than you are. Just be you. Because I wanted weak you, and that when you're you, I'm going to work through you, and I'm going to get the glory. That's what God says. I remember a few years ago, it would have been 2013. I remember in a 9 o'clock service, I didn't do it in any of the other services, but it was in the 9 o'clock service, and I was... I was struggling with tons of anxiety around that time, and in one service in particular, I came up and I could barely breathe. I was feeling anxiety so bad. And I just couldn't keep it anymore, and I was always trying to hide it from people because I always thought, you know what? People only want to follow. They're not going to want to listen to me unless I'm confident. They want to follow a confident leader. They want to listen to a confident speaker, and I'm, gonna, I'm not going to be able to minister for God. And so I was always trying to hide it. And finally, one service, uh, I just got up in the 9 o'clock service, and it was so bad I, I had a hard time talking. And I just said to everybody, I just want you to know I'm having massive anxiety right now. If you would just all pray for me, that would be great. And I, just, and I felt like such a dork, and I felt like such an idiot. And uh, I just thought, like, this is not how leadership is done. you got to be, and you know what? It's that, that one message, that one service, I've got more comments back from that. Young people, old people, men, women, married, single. I've got from kids to adults to, to, to retired people over the years. So many people have come to me. First of all, they were saying, you're a regular guy, okay? Which I always thought, I thought that was obvious, okay? But, <laughs> but you're a regular guy. And, but many of them just feeling, huh, it was like chains were coming off in their own lives. Why? Because in weakness, God ministers to people. When we pretend to be strong all the time, other people can't be ministered to. But when we just realize, here's me. I'm just messed up like the rest of you. And we go, and then God works through that, and that encourages people, and that blesses people, and that ministers to people, because then he gets the glory. And that's what he wants, right? So I want to show you this. Now, in the, in the David story, okay? And I want to show you what real weakness looks like. Now, for me and some, some of you, you may struggle with depression or anxiety or some things like that. For you, weakness will, will often mean feeling in your emotions, feeling very weak. But some of you might be sitting here today, and that's not your issue. 
And so you might think, well, I don't know how to feel weak, okay? And so what I want to show you is being weak doesn't mean you're always feeling weak. I want to show you five things from the David story, what it means to minister out of weakness instead of strength, okay? And so we're going to find this in the rest of David's story. So we're going to pick up now in verse 26. And Goliath has kept taunting and taunting and taunting 40 days and 40 nights. And David, at the end of this now, verse 26, he, he, he's not in the Israelite army. He's still, he's still with the sheep, but he brings provisions for his brothers who are in the army. And he hears Goliath taunting them. And so we pick up the story in verse 26. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? So, first of all, some of these guys are saying, and who are you, shepherd boy? All the men of Israel are afraid, and he just comes in and says, who's this uncircumcised Philistine? First thing I want you to know, notice is, weakness might mean you feel weak. And if you feel weak, and you feel timid, and you feel anxiety, and you feel afraid, I just want to tell you right now, God still wants to use you. That's awesome. But you might not be, have that, that might not be your struggle. And I want to tell you right now that weakness doesn't mean you can't be bold. David is incredibly bold here, okay? And we're going to look at why he's bold as we go through this. But he is incredibly bold, okay? Weakness doesn't mean you can never have confidence. It just means you have to have confidence in the right places, not in the wrong ones, okay? So we keep going now. Verse 31, when the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul and he sent for them. Now, for him. Now, this, you know what this is? This is called desperation. Imagine you're a king. Think about this. Again, we don't think about this when we read, when we read this story. We think, of course, this is a story about David. Of course, David, Saul called him in and, and talked to him. Just think about this for a moment. Imagine you are a king and you are in charge of a huge army and you have a nation, okay? And you have problems and your biggest problem is Goliath, but you have problems and you got an army and you got a war you got to fight and you're busy. You're having meetings all the time and raising up your army and doing all the things that a king has to do. Some teenage boy shows up in the army ranks and is a little bit bragging or bold or whatever and your first thought is, bring him in. He's desperate, okay? He's so scared out of his wits. He'll do anything. There's some little uh, shrimp of a shepherd boy who's talking big about Goliath. Bring him in. Maybe he's the answer, right? This is utter desperation, okay? And he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine, okay? Now, you're saying, where's the weakness here? All I see is a cocky teenage kid. Well, we're going we're gonna to see. Verse 33, and Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine, okay? David's feeling boldness. I'm going to show you in just a moment his boldness is in the Lord, not himself. And there's a big difference between those two things, and I'll, and I'll show it to you. But I just want you to notice here, you are not able. Everybody can see it, and David himself knows it. You are not tall enough. You are not heavy enough. You are not strong enough. You are not skilled enough. You have, don't have enough experience. You are not able able. It's not even close. You are not able to go against this Philistine. And what I want you to notice about David is he does not step up, step up on his tippy toes and go, yeah, I'm big enough. He does not kind of puff himself out a bit and say, I'm heavy enough. I'm strong enough. I'm big enough. Let me pull out a sword and do some, you know, kung fu kind of woo woo and I can do this and I can beat him. That's not what he does. That's not what he does because he knows he's not able. That's what you do if you think you're able. You just puff yourself a little bit. I, I can do it. I can do it. I'm big enough. I'm strong enough. I'm good enough. That's not what David does. He knows he's not able. He knows he's not tall enough. He knows he's not strong enough. He knows he's not skilled enough. 
Okay? It has the first thing about being weak. It doesn't mean you always have to feel timid and afraid, but it does mean this. You have to recognize. You have to recognize your limitations and trust God instead. Okay? And I'm going to show you this. We're going to get to that in verse 37. We're going to have to go through a couple other things first, but I'm going to show you in verse 37 when we get there that he is absolutely trusting in God's power, not his own. Okay? But we're going to keep going. But that's the first thing is just to recognize And that's actually harder than we sometimes realize. Many of us are brought up quite self-confident. We think we can pull things off. There's a place we have to go in our devotional life with the Lord where we quiet ourselves regularly before him. And I I really think one of the only ways to get there, well, I mean, part of it is God will bring you through failures and various things and show you your limitations. But one of the best ways to get there is just through a devotional life where you regularly quiet yourself in the morning with the Lord and you're thankful for the things he's done in your life, and over time, his Holy Spirit begins to open up your eyes, and you begin to realize, I am not strong enough. Everything that's happened in my life is because of Jesus. That, that realization is weakness at work. It's not putting yourself down. That realization is weakness at work. Recognize your limitations, trust God instead. But let's, we're going to keep looking, and uh, we're going to look at what David uh, does here and how he gets to this place. Verse 34 but David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. Now, I've got to warn you, in this verse, he's still going to look like he's bragging, but I'm going to show you the motivation you know, behind it all. Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Now, can you imagine catching a bear or a lion by the beard and striking him and killing him? Okay. Now, again, it sounds like he's bragging. By the way, if I had done this, I would be insufferable to be around. I would brag about it all the time. (laughs) Like, if I had ever done this to a bear line, you better believe I would be telling this story all the time, okay? But I want you to notice, first of all, his motivation. But I'm going to show you that he isn't bragging. We're We're getting there. But verse 36, I want you, first of all, to see his motivation because his motivation in doing all this is key to the difference between working out of weakness and working out of strength. Look at his motivation. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. Why? For he has defied the armies of the living God. I want you to know, notice why David is so concerned with Goliath. We're taking him on. It is not because he needs, he needs some kind of personal affirmation. There's a wound in his heart, and he needs to fill it by doing something really important. He's not looking for approval. He's not doing it because he's pressured. Other people are pushing him to do it. He's not doing it because of some inner need. See, if you're working out of your strengths, this, and this is so important, he's doing it for one reason, and that's God's glory. He says, I don't like it that God's glory is in the mud right now. I'm going to take on Goliath, not so that I look good, but so that God looks good. I'm going to tell you right now, that motivation is like heaven for your soul. So much of the stress in our lives is because we want to be glorified. Really deep down, subconsciously, we want people to like us, We want to be affirmed in our own hearts that we are important and that we matter and that what we do is important. We want people to look up to us and say, what a great leader, what a great mom, what a great teacher, what a great whatever. We subconsciously want glory. We want to be successful. And with that desire for glory comes a lot of stress because when I want people's glory, when I want people to look up to me, I've got to cover over my weaknesses and I have to look strong. When you operate out of your strengths, your desire is for your own glory. It's very stressful. But if you can actually get to a place, I actually just want Jesus to look good. I'm not doing this business. I don't need this business to be successful because I have to look successful. 
because I have this inner need that I have to have a certain level of house, a certain level of success, so everybody looks at me and says, that's an important person. I don't have to be successful in this ministry because I need people to see me as having purpose in life. No, 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 no. I have one desire. I'm just a regular, weak person, and I'm okay with people knowing that I'm a nobody. I just want Jesus' name to be glorified. When you have that motivation, you are working out of weakness because you don't need to build yourself up. The whole thing is, I'll just be regular. I'll just admit who I am. I struggle with this. I struggle with this. I'm so imperfect. I'm not the best speaker. I'm not the best this. I'm not the best this. And I'll just, I'll just let it's all for God, and then they're going to see God using a regular person. When you have that motivation, you're working at a weakness. It's a joyful place to serve God from. It's a joyful place to serve God from. You just want people to be impressed with God. We keep going now. Verse 37, and David said, the Lord who delivered me. Remember before I said he wasn't, he wasn't bragging? And here we see it. And David said, the Lord who delivered me. The Lord who delivered me. We have to get to a place in our lives where we recognize that everything good that's happened in our lives actually is for ultimately from God. And we have a hard time doing this. We just think, and this is why we're stressed for the future, by the way, because we think everything we've pulled off in our lives is because we made it pull off, and now I'm stressed. Am I going to be able to keep pulling it off in the future? That's why we're stressed. But there's a place we have to go, and you know how we get there? Through gratitude. We don't practice. We talk a lot about Thanksgiving here at this church, but we still don't practice it nearly enough. The Apostle Paul said, be thankful in all things at all times. At all, in all things at all times, we should be thankful. We need to be th a thankful people. That every day, it's a discipline in our lives, that every day as believers, we take time to quiet ourselves and be thankful. You know what happens when you begin to learn as a daily discipline to quiet yourself and be thankful is something's going to start to change in your heart and you're going to actually start to feel and recognize that actually the things that have happened in your life weren't because you were so amazing, they were because of God. And when you feel that, oh, it'll begin to set you free. When you actually recognize, when it dawns on your soul that actually everything that's happened in your life is from God, it's freeing. And you realize how much he loves you and you're grateful. And when you recognize that it was all from God, you'll start to communicate that to others just subconsciously through everything, how you talk about your life and how you talk about yourself. And he will get the glory. And he will get the glory because you are thankful. And David said, the Lord, he's not bragging about what he did to the bear because he realized it was God that made it happen. And, God, and David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion, from the paw of the bear, will deliver me. Now this is, the, this is the next part that's so awesome. Many Christians haven't entered into this place of this discipline of every single day be just being thankful. Be thankful every day, all the time. Begin to recognize what God's been at work in your life. But then there's another switch that a lot of Christians never get to that David was awesome at. He didn't stop at just being thankful for things in the past. He turned thankfulness for things in the past into faith for things in the future. He didn't stop at, a lot of people, they just stop at Thanksgiving and they feel grateful. Wow, what God has done for me is so awesome. And then they look to the future and they're scared again. Oh, the future is stressing me out. What's gonna happen? What, what's gonna go on? What, what's God gonna do? Is it gonna turn out? And David didn't stop there. He took thankfulness for things in the past. He said, the same God who delivered me from the lion and the bear, that wasn't my own strength. If it was my own strength, I gotta be stressed out. Will my strength carry me through the next trial? But if it was God's strength, I can now turn to the future and say, the same God who delivered me from the lion and the bear will deliver me from Goliath. He took thanksgiving. He took thanksgiving for things in the past and he turned it into faith for his future. And he began to declare and he just said, God will take care of me. 
God will take care of me. And again, you're not working out of your strengths here, but you're also not feeling timid. You can actually become bold in your devotion times. We need to begin to learn to speak this language in prayer, to turn thankfulness for things in the past, to begin to pray with thanksgiving and faith for things in the future, instead of praying beaten prayers and feeling beaten in our prayers, to pray for the future knowing that God will deliver us, that he'll deliver our children, that he'll deliver our families, that he'll deliver us from the things we're going through because he's always taken care of us in the past. That's a powerful thing. We need to change the language of our prayer lives. We need to actually do this, not just hear in a message. I really pray. Well, I put that point up on the PowerPoint, and we sit here and we look at it and we go, oh, that was a neat point. I really like that. That felt good for a moment. If we don't go home and do something about it, it won't change you. But if we will go home and we will change the language of our prayer lives and we'll take the thankfulness and we'll turn it into faith for the future, you can become a David. You can become a little shepherd boy with a slingshot that knocks out giants. Because it wasn't about him. Anybody can be weak like David. Not anybody can be big and strong like Goliath. But any of us can be a weak shepherd boy like David. But we've got to turn thankfulness into faith for the future. And then God will work through us. And then we get to the fifth thing about weakness. And this next one's profound. I really believe. I, I just, this really spoke to me this week. Verse 38. Then Saul clothed Dave, David with his armor. Now Saul's being nice here. He's being nice here, right? I mean, first of all, we looked two weeks ago, Saul was the tallest man in Israel. He was head and shoulders above everybody else. It should have been him fighting Goliath, not the shepherd boy. But intimidation has worked on him. He's cowering, and he'll, anybody but me, some five-foot-nothing shepherd boy comes and says, I'll fight Goliath, great, you do it, okay? But I'll give you my armor, okay? And he's the king of Israel. He's probably the nicest, most, you know, cutting edge, uh, you know, no pun intended, I guess, but, but it's like top of the line, high technology, very expensive armor. He says, you take this because how's a shepherd boy going to take on Goliath? Goliath's got armor, you've got to have armor. So he gives David his armor, okay? Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor and he tried in vain to go for he had not tested them. It was too heavy for him. He wasn't used to it. And David said to Saul, I cannot go with these for I have not tested them. So David put them off. I want to talk to you one more thing about weakness. You cannot fight God's battles with anybody else's armor. You can't. And it will weigh you down. Oh, God has spoken to me so many times about this. But if you try to be some, we can learn from other Christians. We should. We should learn from older Christians. People have walked the walk. We should read biographies and we should learn from them. But you will be weighed down with condemnation and guilt. You will be overwhelmed if you try to do it like someone else. If you try to have their prayer life. If you try to have, do it the way they did it. Your stage of life is different. Your calling is different. Your personality is different. Everything is different. And wearing somebody else's armor will always be too heavy for you. You don't have to be somebody else. You don't have to pray the same way. You don't have to minister the same way. If you try it, it'll wear you out. Here's what it means to operate out of weakness. You just accept who you are. David says, I'm a shepherd boy. So why am I going to put on armor? Why am I going to put on armor and meet Goliath armor to armor? I can't beat him at his own game. He says, I'm a shepherd. I'm going to take my slingshot. That's what I'm going to take. Now again, it's not that you can never use your talents and abilities. All David knew how to use was a slingshot. That's using your talents and abilities. But here's the, how, what it means to use your talents and abilities out of weakness, is that you just understand that your slingshot is a pea shooter against the devil. And you realize it's going to take God's strength. Use your strength and ability. You know how to use a slingshot? Use it for Jesus. But recognize that a slingshot without Jesus doesn't take down Goliath. 
David says, I just got to go the way I am. I'm a shepherd boy. I'm going into battle as a shepherd boy. He's not trying to be Superman. He's certainly not trying to be Superwoman. Verse 40, I got to say that nowadays. Anyway, uh, <laughs> then he took a staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook. So there's our one biblical reference to uh, Steinbeck. Someone told me yesterday, right? Stony Brook, but anyway. Um, <laughs> Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistine. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him for he was but a youth. The devil, will, the world will always disdain you. When you just go as your regular weak self, the world always, you know, social media, the whole thing is make yourself look better than you are. And God says, don't make yourself look better than you are. Make yourself look exactly as weak as you are so I get the glory. And then the world will disdain you. Ha! You have problems. You're a normal person. You struggle with things. What are you going to do for God? Goliath just disdains him. You're, you're just a youth. Ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Now watch what David says to the Philistine. But then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. But I want you to notice again, where is David's confidence? He doesn't say, but I'm coming to you with a slingshot. No, that slingshot is nothing to Goliath. Look at this. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. This is why David was bold. You can be weak. You don't have to have talent. You don't have to have nothing for God. If you'll just offer him your weak self, now you're going in his name. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. And this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. You're definitely not a Canadian, right? No Canadian would have said that, but anyway. <laughs> and I will give you the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that I'm a great warrior. No. No, he doesn't care about that. That all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear. He doesn't save with talent and ability and money and all those sorts of things. He just says, you come to me with your slingshot. You come, you come to me with your slingshot, and I'll use your slingshot. The Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to David, I love this, David ran quickly toward the battle line. He's not cowering. As Christians, when you realize it's about God's glory, not yours, and you just trust in him, and you're so full of thankfulness for how God's delivered you in the past, David doesn't need to run away from the stuff in the future that stresses him out. He runs towards Goliath. David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. And the stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. And the, and the author here is just emphasizing the fact that it's not with his weapons. But now I want to finish with this verse. Verse 51. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword. I really believe there's a prophetic encouragement for us this morning in this, in this passage here. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine. He runs now to Goliath who's lying on the ground and now he takes Goliath's sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. Okay? And I believe there's a prophetic encouragement with us in the, and this is the prophetic encouragement. I really believe that when you allow God to work through you in your weakness as just regular old you, at a certain point you will prevail over the evil one. At a certain point God's going God's to have his victory over the devil and he's going to take whatever the weapon the, God, the devil's been using against you and he's going to turn it back on the devil and beat him with it. I actually really believe that. That's what we see here. 
Goliath has been threatening Israel with, the, with his sword and with, and with it just terrifying them and intimidating them. And now what happens is David knocks the guy down. He takes that very sword that Goliath's been terrifying them with. He takes it out of his hand, and it's that sword he cuts off Goliath's head with. And I really believe that if you allow God to work through you in your weakness, at a certain point you will prevail, and God's going to take the very thing the devil's been beating you with, and he's going to turn it back on the devil and beat the devil with it. And that's the attitude we need to have. Many of us have just been defeated. But you might be a person here, and, I, and, and you know, we just did the Conquer series this last year and some other stuff, but maybe you're a guy here and you've struggled with a porn addiction for many, many years, and then, but you just stay faithful to it, and you persevere, and then God delivers you. He didn't deliver you so you could just go to church for the rest of your life and feel good about yourself. At a certain point, you have to turn around and you have to take that thing that the devil used against you and you have to use it to beat back his kingdom. And now you devote your life to helping other men walk through that same victory as you have. Or you have, a, you have marriage struggles and you just feel that, that, that sidelines me. You know what you need to do is get down on your knees and pray and get help and see God's grace move in your life. And then you need to turn around and you need to devote yourself to helping marriages. There's so many marriages that are struggling. Why would you sit around with a good marriage? You had struggles. Now you're just going to be content with your good marriage, but you're not going to help others. You turn around and you use that against the devil. Or your spouse left you and you've been separated and you think, now I'm done for. I can't be used in the church. Yes, you can. You know how many other people are in that situation. You deal with your junk and you go to Jesus and now you use the rest of your life to serve him. And it doesn't just have to be sin or struggles. Maybe you're, you got some sickness or disease and you think you're just beaten because of that. You know what you need to do? You need to turn that again into something to use for God in your weakness. Every time you go to the hospital, you, tell, you show those nurses and you tell those nurses and you tell those other patients about Jesus. I know people in this church, they have problems sleeping. And they're constantly being woken up. And I know some of them, they've told me, they say, whenever I get woken up now in the middle of the night, I've just decided if the devil's going to wake me up at night, I'm going to pray for the church. I'm going to pray for some of you pastors. I'm going to just pray. I've even tried that a little bit in my life. I just find right away the devil says, whoa, let's not go there, and I'm right back to sleep, right? <laughs> but you're going to wake me up in the night, I'm going to whack you, okay? <laughs> you're going to wake me up in the night, I'm going to smack you, but I am not, we're going to use... If the devil, if God's going to work through us, we will offer ourselves to him in weakness. You've had miscarriages? Give your life to ministering to women who go through that. You have other disappointments in life? Couldn't have kids? Couldn't get mar married? Those are all experiences and hurts and pains and disappointments that God says, would you come to me with those? You just be weak, regular you. You've suffered. Now let's turn around and let's use those things for the kingdom. Let's use those to bless others and, and to help others. But don't sit on the sideline. It's only those who actually get into the battle. It's only those like David. David was weak. You, didn't, you don't have to do anything to be a David. But you've got to have the courage to step out and say, I believe God's going to use me to step out on the battlefield if you're ever going to see. You're not going to ever see a Goliath fall if you don't ever go and fight a Goliath. And what I love is in the end, when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. That's the devil every time. It's intimidation, intimidation, intimidation. But if someone weak will just listen to the Holy Spirit and say, I'm not backing down, and they'll just prevail, at a certain point the devil goes, I'm out of here. This is exactly not what I wanted. I didn't want Christians who would actually stand up to me and actually go for it because he's nothing against, against God's power. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled, and the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Shurim as far as Gath and Ekron. I want to give you a weekly challenge and we'll pray and we'll, we'll sing a song to worship Jesus. What, what pain, hurt, disappointment, spiritual attack or struggle do you need to turn back on the devil? God's never going to waste those things in your weakness. You've gone through stuff in your life. 
God wants to take that stuff now and wants to use it. You've had kids that have wandered away from the Lord. Do you know how many parents struggle with that? Now take that pain and go and minister to some people. Take that pain and minister to people. Is there something in your life that you've just viewed it as a loss? You've just viewed it as what a waste. And God's saying, I don't want it to be a waste. I won't waste a single hurt. I won't waste a single thing you've gone through. You've got to turn that around now. You've got to use it for the kingdom. You've got to use it for the kingdom. And God loves to use weak people. Have you been allowing insecurity or inadequacy to keep you from leading or ministering in some area? Spend some time this week and write down whatever God chooses. In fact, we're going to take a moment. Write down, just listen. I want you to bow your heads with me. I want you to close your eyes. And maybe on one of those first two things, maybe there's something the devil's been using against you in your life that you need to turn back on him. Or maybe you've been allowing feelings of insecurity and inadequacy to hold you back from, from really serving the Lord. And we're just going to let the Lord bring something to your mind right now. If there's something there the Lord wants to say, Jesus, would you bring those things to our mind? If there's something in our lives that we need to turn back on the devil, if there's some place of insecurity we've been allowing to keep us from getting in the game and serving you, would you bring that to our mind right now? Jesus, we want to do business with you. We want to be a church that actually puts Satan to flight. We don't want to cower. We don't want to capitulate. We don't want to compromise. We want to be a, a church that stays true to the end. We want to give our lives for you. Lord, we want to be regular us, and we just want to be weak shepherd people who are just going to go for it and want to see you do great things through us. Would you make us that kind of a church? Would you make us that kind of a people? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.